great month of ministry here at Impact, aren't we? I am so proud of our men who shared the gospel and shared the preaching with us this last month. I'm thankful for Alan. I'm thankful for Pastor Jackson, uh, for Daniel and Ryan and Braden and Adam, who all preached the word this last month as I was working on my latest book. I'm doing a 40-day devotion through the Proverbs designed especially for teenagers and students. And so I'm really excited about hopefully getting that published this summer. And so uh, those guys stepped in and did amazing job preaching this last month. If you missed any of those messages, they're all recorded and we have them on YouTube and on our website. So I encourage you to check out those messages if you missed them. And so once again, thanks guys for doing such a great job preaching last month. Well, as of today, I'm officially back in the saddle. I'm excited to share with you from God's Word. I need you to open your Bibles from sec- to Second Chronicles chapter 7. Second Chronicles 7, it's a few hundred pages into your Old Testament. Second Chronicles 7 will be in verse 14 today. Uh, this is one of my favorite subjects. We're going to be talking today about revival. Revival. I think it's one of the most important things we could be talking about at this point in time. Well, this past November, the campus pastor over at Hope International University in Fullerton shot me an email and asked if I would come speak uh, to their students at their chapel service on February 16th. Well, at the time he shot me this email, it was about three months away, and I thought to myself, wow, what an honor, but at the same time, I was caught off guard. I graduated from Hope International University, University, University 26 years ago. And in 26 years, they had never invited me to come and speak. So I thought, well, I don't know why now, but I accepted the invitation. God didn't throw up any roadblocks or stop signs. So I went a couple weeks ago and preached to the students. Now, a few months ahead of time, he gave me the topic that he wanted me to preach on. And so I began thinking about that topic and preparing to speak on that topic. Three days before I was scheduled to go, I took a good chunk of that day to dive into God's Word and jot down a bunch of great thoughts. And I had some good stuff in my notes. And 24 hours later, with only 48 hours to go before I was scheduled to speak, I scrapped it all. I scrapped it all. Now, why would I do that? I was given a topic, a clear topic to speak on. Why would I not do that? Well, it kind of goes this way. You see... I make plans. Sometimes I make really good plans. But I am a follower of Jesus Christ, so he has every right to scrap my plans that I make, no matter how good they are. Amen? He can certainly scrap my plans. And I believe that's what God did in the 48 hours, particularly leading up to when I was scheduled to speak. And so, you know what? When it comes down to it, God does some of his very best work in our lives when he completely scraps our plans. So I changed my plans about 48 hours ahead of speaking. God really began to wreck my plans a whole eight days before I actually spoke. Well, you may remember what happened back there on February 8th. It was an interesting day, I believe, in our nation. It was an interesting day because on February 8th, God began to stir in some young hearts at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. And as that began to grow and build, we'll talk about that a bit in a moment, God began to wreck my plans. I want to suggest to you that some of the very best moments in your life will be those moments when God wrecks your plans. I want to suggest to you today that when you get to the end of your life and you look back on your life, you will identify that some of the highlights of your life were those moments when you had some great plans and you were ready to carry them out and you were excited and you felt they were right for you and they were right for your family and they were right for your church. And all of a sudden God says, scrap all that, change your plans. You've got these plans in place. We're doing something completely different. Congratulations. Jump on board, move it or lose it. And you'll look back, I believe, at the end of your life and say, you know what? Some of those moments where I carried the greatest impact here on earth was those times, thank God, that he scrapped my plans. As I stood before those college students two weeks ago, instead of talking about the subject I was given, I talked about revival. I talked about revival. You see, when those times come when God scraps our plans, gives us something completely different, and what he gives us that's different is extraordinary, we often use that word revival to describe it. 
And my favorite verse in the whole Bible that deals with revival is 2 Chronicles 7.14. Before we, let's move to another slide real quick. Before I focus on this verse, let me give you the context. King Solomon has just built the temple. Remember, King David had it on his heart to build this glorious temple out of gold in Jerusalem, a proper place to worship the Lord, because he thought the creator of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, should not be dwelling in a tent. And so he builds this glorious temple. He wants to. He builds it in his head. But God says, David, you're not the one to do it. Your son will be a man of peace. You are a man of war. And so King Solomon was given that task to build the temple that his dad, David, had dreamed of. And that's exactly what Solomon does. He follows his dad's plans. He adds more gold and tons of wood and all this stuff to make it the most glorious structure on earth to house the Shekinah glory of God, as if God's glory could ever be housed. And so when the temple is being dedicated, the glory of God descends in that temple, pushes out every human being. And Solomon has a prayer of dedication. He says, oh, God, in the generations to come, when we sin against you, when we fail you, when we drop the ball, will you, as we turn toward this temple and pray for forgiveness, will you forgive us? Will you heal our land? And God responds to that prayer. And the heart of his response is here in Second Chronicles 7.14. Take a look at it with me. God says in Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal our land. Let's take a look at those three promises at the end of the verse. How many of you long for God to hear your prayer from heaven? How many of you desire for God to forgive your sin and the sin of our nation that is great? How many of you desire for God to heal our land? I do too. On February 8th, eight days before I was scheduled to speak at that university, something remarkable did happen in Asbury University. It was kind of a curious thing. Many of you have read about it, seen interviews about it. It was a normal Wednesday morning chapel service, much like that chapel service I was a part of at Hope a couple weeks ago. Every week, the students have to come together, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, have their required chapel service. You go to the Christian college, you've got to go to chapel. And so they had the worship, pretty normal. They had a speaker, pretty normal. They had some prayers and announcements, pretty normal. But it didn't end in a normal way. At the end of that service, something strange happened. It didn't end. A student came forward, started confessing sin. Other students started coming forward and falling on their faces before God. Others gathered together for prayer huddles. The praise team, the worship team, just kept leading songs of worship. And so that chapel service that started at 10 a.m. went past noon. And it went into the afternoon and into the evening and through the night. And then it went through the next day, Thursday, and the day after that, Friday, and the day after that, and the day after that. It went on for two weeks until the university staff literally shut it down. It went on for almost 400 hours. A service that was supposed to last one hour. 260 colleges and universities across the nation saw some of their students come and descend upon the Asbury campus. Christians from 260 universities came to Asbury to be a part of it. And over the course of those next two weeks, it's estimated that some 50,000 people, not just from across the country, but from as far away as Singapore, took a pilgrimage to Asbury University, waiting hours in line just to be in that chapel. Something remarkable was taking place. Something extraordinary was taking place. Many people are calling it revival. And I believe it was a spark of revival, but the question is, will it spread? Will it spread across this nation like wildfire? I certainly hope and pray it does. You may not know this, but historically, major nationwide revivals tend to take place about every hundred years. The first great awakening took place in the mid-1700s. It's powerful. The second great awakening took place in the early 1800s. And in the 20th century, we saw a number of revivals, a bit smaller but still powerful. For instance, 1906, the Azusa Street Revival, downtown Los Angeles, that sparked the the charismatic movement in our nation about 100 years ago. 
early 1970s, the Jesus Revolution. How many of you have seen the movie? That movie, amazing. If you haven't seen it, you've got to see it because it'll spark your heart's desire to see God move in an amazing, extraordinary way once again. It tells the story of that Jesus Revolution among the hippies where tens of thousands of hippies were saved there in the 1970s. It was a smaller revival, but it was nationwide. You know, when it comes down to it, we are overdue for a huge nationwide revival in this country. A nationwide revival where God sets his church on fire, and as the church is set on fire, it spills into the streets so the millions are saved. I've been praying for revival, this type of national huge revival, for more than 23 years. And has it begun in Asbury? I don't know for sure, but I can tell you this. I believe it's close, very very close. Well, let's ask that question. What is revival? Let's look at a few definitions. Charles Finney, who was a a key leader and preacher in the Second Great Awakening, he defined revival this way. Charles Finney says, revival is the renewal of the first love of Christians. In other words, people love Jesus like never before. Christians love Jesus like never before, resulting in the awakening and conversion of sinners. It reclaims the backslidden church and awakens all classes. That's a pretty good definition, don't you think? Christians' hearts are on fire for Jesus Christ. We saw this in Asbury a few weeks ago, where the students couldn't explain it, but they were overcome with a love for God. They were overcome with a love for Jesus Christ, and they didn't want to leave that chapel because they just wanted to be in his presence just a little bit longer. It renews the love of God. Look at this second definition by D.M. Panton. This is a more interesting definition. He says, revival is the inrush of the spirit into a body that threatens to become a corpse. And he's talking about the church body. How many of you are bold enough to admit that there are ways that the church in America today is corpse-like? Many churches are corpse-like. You look across the crowd on a Sunday morning as worship is taking place, and some of you in some churches would draw the the conclusion that those Christians' worship is corpse-like. Many churches' evangelism, their outreach is corpse-like. Their enthusiasm for Christ is corpse-like. Their time in the Word is corpse-like. Many Christians across America spend no more time in God's Word on their own than a dead body would. In many ways, Christians and churches across America are corpse-like. And at a time of revival, the Spirit of God rushes in and causes the dry, dead bones to come alive again. Amen? Mm, Just love it. Shortest definition of revival. Ready for this? God. We're Christians. We all know the verse where Jesus said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be with them in their midst. That is a true verse, correct? Jesus promises two or more of his followers are gathered in his name. He's going to be there. So why would we say revival is God? Well, here's how it works. When two or more are gathered in Jesus' name, God shows up. When revival comes, God really shows up. When two or more are gathered in Jesus' name, Jesus shows up. But when revival comes, Jesus really shows up in an amazing, extraordinary way. My favorite definition of revival was the operating definition used by promise keepers in the 1990s. If you're... Under 20 or so, you don't probably know what the Promise Keepers movement was, but it was a men's movement in the 1990s where men were meeting at major sports stadiums across the nation, drawing closer to God. It was a smaller revival, but it was pretty cool. And they had this operating definition that I've loved over the last 25 years. Revival is the extraordinary work of God among his people, causing extraordinary results in and through the church. This definition is so good, I want you to read it with me. Revival is the extraordinary work of God among his people, causing extraordinary results in and through the church. Now, like you mean it, revival is the extraordinary work of God among his people, causing extraordinary results in and through the church. Now, there are three important things I want you to note in this definition. Number one, revival is a work of God, not man. 
You and I cannot manufacture revival. We can't even schedule revival. Some churches say, come on out, church, Wednesday at 7 p.m. We're going to have revival. No, you're not. You're going to have a church service. We can't manufacture revival. We can't schedule revival. That's not revival. It's a church service. A revival is a work of God, and historically, revival tends to come at unexpected times. When God chooses, oftentimes when we least expect it. Number two, I want you to notice in this definition here, notice that revival is an extraordinary work of God, which causes extraordinary results. When we talk about revival, we're not ignoring the fact that God is always at work in and through the church. God is always working. God's work always brings results. Amen. Aren't you thankful? You know, many of you, my favorite verse in the whole Bible, Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is always at work. Amen. Amen. But during times of revival, God's work is kicked up a huge notch. It is nothing short of extraordinary. During a season of revival, there is a massive explosion of God's work in and through the church, and the results are off the charts. This last month, we had three baptisms here at Impact. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Would any of you deny that's a work of God? No, it was a work of God, wasn't it? Three people were baptized. We praise God that three decisions for Christ were made. Three baptisms took place. That is awesome. But here's the thing. Revival comes to this church. It won't be normal to see three baptisms in a month. It'll be more like 30, quite possibly even 300. I'm being serious. Historically, when revival comes, that's what we tend to see. We get excited when once a year on Easter Sunday, 250 people show up to church. Woohoo! We almost doubled our attendance today. That's an exciting work of God, isn't it? When more people show up to church. But when revival comes, I believe we'll have more than that on a Monday night prayer meeting. Because people are hungry and coming for God. They're not waiting for Sunday morning. They can't wait. They want to come on a Monday. They just came yesterday, but they're coming again on Monday. When revival comes, we'll have more than that show up, I believe, on Monday. We rejoice when we witness one person per year get healed of cancer. That's a wonderful work of God. But when revival comes, I believe we'll see many people healed of cancer and disease and depression and mental illness, one after the other after the other. And it won't just take place on Sundays at 9 a.m. in the sanctuary. When revival comes, it'll fill the streets. People will fall under the conviction of God in parks, in schools, at the mall. Believe it or not, even at Walmart. Alan's especially excited about that. He hates Walmart, but that's a story for another day. If Christians are all fired up at church, but they don't have more holy lives as a result of getting all fired up that's not revival if christians get all fired up at church but their priorities don't change that's not revival if christians get all fired up at church but their love for the lost doesn't change that's not revival if our level of disgust with our own sin doesn't change that's not revival if the church gets all fired up but doesn't take jesus to the streets and lead tons of people to a saving knowledge of christ that's not revival what we find in america today in many american churches is nothing but emotionalism people get all fired up for jesus And the fog machines are going and the lights are blaring and the sound is loud and the worship is drumming up an emotional response and the Christians leave the building and they don't live a bit differently than when they came. But that does not happen when there is an extraordinary move of God. Number three, revival always begins with followers of Christ. Notice that extraordinary work of God among his people. Say that with me. Among his people. It always begins with followers of Christ. It's been said that you have to be vived to be revived. That's true, isn't it? That's true. Non-Christians, unbelievers cannot be revived because they haven't been vived in the first place, right? 
Revival always begins with Christians. It always begins with the church. But what always happens when Christians are revived, as they are set on fire by the Holy Spirit of God, it's inevitable they can't keep the good news to themselves. And so just like the woman at the well, when she gave her life to Christ, (laughs) she had to tell everybody. She couldn't contain it. So Jesus says, go get them. Go get them. Go tell them. The church will spill into the streets In times of revival and what happens when the spirit of God through the followers of God and the believers of God take the message of salvation of God out into the streets, many, many people get saved. And so if you're into terminology, keep these terms straight. Revival happens to Christians. Spiritual awakening happens in the streets. As Christians are revived and they take it to the streets, our culture is awakened. And in a country our size, literally millions upon millions would be saved in a short amount of time. Now, some of you are skeptical and probably saying to yourselves, this type of revival could never happen in our lifetimes. You want to bet? You want to bet? It's happened many times in the history of the church, and I believe it's going to happen in our day. A few quick examples. In 30 AD, there was an extraordinary move of God on the day of Pentecost. You can read about it in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit descended and filled the 120 Christians gathered in an upper room there in Jerusalem. They were gathered together praying just 50 days after Jesus had risen from the dead. They were praying and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came down on them, filled them. And what did they do when they were filled with the Holy Spirit? They left the room and took it to the streets. And on that day, in one single day, that church grew from 120 to 3,120 by the power of Almighty God. The church was experiencing its very first revival. And over the next 30 years, the gospel of Jesus Christ was taken throughout Southwest Asia and Europe and even into Northern Africa. The church had experienced its first revival. Fast forward about 13, 1,500 years even. An extraordinary move of God took place in Saxony, Germany. A German priest and theologian named Martin Luther nailed his 95-point thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Castle. Martin Luther planned to start an open debate. Instead, God brought revival. We call it the Protestant Reformation. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful you're not stuck in a Catholic church today? If you're Catholic here, well, we'll deal with that later. No, I I try not to to rip on Catholicism too much, but uh, we need to uh, focus on the Word of God and not on a pope. And we do need to focus on the Word of God and not on the stuff that has been added to it over the last 2,000 years by many other churches. In 1517, God worked in the life of Martin Luther. In 1722, a group of German Christians called Moravians began praying around the clock seven days a week. In 24 one-hour shifts, their prayer vigil lasted for the next 100 years, and that century of prayer witnessed the greatest missionary outreach the world has yet experienced, as well as the first and second great awakenings, and the examples go on and on. Amen? Well, what can we do to prepare for revival? Now, knowing what we know, how do we prepare for it? Once again, we cannot manufacture revival, but there is something I can do. There's something you can do. There's something that we can do. And it's right here in 2 Chronicles 7.14. We cannot manufacture revival. We cannot produce an extraordinary move of God. But we can certainly open the door wide so the Spirit of God can rush in. Amen? Some of you might be thinking of the Revelation 3 verse where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and be with him. And he can be with me. Remember, Jesus there isn't speaking to non-Christians who aren't saved yet. He's speaking to the church. He's talking to a church that had closed their doors. And we're saying, you know what, God? We just want a little taste of you. We don't want all of you to rush in. That's a little more than we can handle. It's a little uncomfortable. Our friends might say we're weird. Our friends might say we're Jesus freaks. So we're just going to kind of keep you at bay. And we're going to have our lives pretty much live the way we want to live them with a little Jesus sprinkled on top. We slam the door in Jesus' face. And Jesus makes it clear he is knocking at that door and wants to come in. How do we open the door widely so Jesus can come into our lives? He can come into our marriage. He can come into our family and he can come into our church and into our nation in full force like he wants to. Once again, God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal 
their land. So I want to point out to you God's four steps for ushering in an extraordinary move of God that he calls out here in this great verse. Step number one, humble yourself before God. Jot that down on your handout. Humble yourself before God. Say that with me. Humble yourself before God. You won't find a single example in the past 2,000 years of a revival that came when a Christian stood up and said, Here I am, God. I'm the best thing that's ever happened to my church. I'm the best thing that's ever happened to my community. I'm the best thing that's ever happened to the kingdom of God. I am here so you can come in full force now. No, God hates arrogance. God never responds in full force to pride in the way that we want him to respond. God didn't save you because you deserve to be saved. He didn't save you because you were worthy to be saved. He didn't save you because you're all that. He saved you because he loves you in spite of yourself. He saved you because he is worthy. He saved you because he's all that. And the same goes for revival. God will never show up and move in extraordinary ways if you're standing up with your chest puffed out, pounding on your chest, saying, I'm the reason you should come. God will never show up and move that way. He doesn't respond to pride. He he hates pride. But he loves humility. God is drawn like a magnet to humility. In Isaiah 57, 15, we read these powerful words. For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is what? Contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now, we don't use those words contrite, um, lofty, maybe very often. But simply said, God says, I respond to those who have humble hearts. He revives humble hearts. The one who is contrite and lowly, the one who is humble, is the one God will listen and respond to. James 4, 6, we read, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Don't you love that verse? He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Years ago, a Jewish rabbi was asked by one of his young students, Rabbi, uh, I've been studying the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, and why don't we see God's face like men of old did? And I love how the the rabbi responded. He said, we don't see God's face today because we don't get low enough. Nowadays, men do not stoop low enough. What a marvelous answer. If you want God to respond to your prayers and move in response to your prayers, don't reach higher. Stoop lower. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You'll not find a single revival in history that didn't have prayer at the center of it, which takes us to step number two. Prayer is the second step Jesus gives us and God gives us in Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people will humble themselves and pray. It's interesting, you, if you were to take up a study of revival over the past 2,000 years, you would find examples of revivals that did not contain great singing. You'd probably find examples of revivals where no one could carry a tune in a bucket, but revival came anyway. Interestingly, you will even find examples of revivals in the past 2,000 years that didn't contain great preaching. The Word of God was always a key part, and they were focused on the Word of God, but there wasn't necessarily great teaching or preaching in the revivals of ages past. Many of them had it, but not all of them. But you will not find a single example of a revival in the past 2,000 years that didn't have prayer at the center of it. Years ago, a pastor friend told me, Dane, you have to pray the price for revival to come. And I've never forgotten that. Dane, you have to pray the price. So Christians, you must pray the price. You will never experience an extraordinary move of God in your midst unless you make prayer a top priority. God might scrap my plans, but at this point I plan on talking about revival a a little bit more in the month to come. And in the weeks to come, I, I hope to talk a little bit more about revival in Scripture and also how prayer plays a pivotal role in opening the door for God to come in in an extraordinary way. Number one, God says you must humble yourself. Number two, I need you to pray. And number three, you are to seek my face. God says, seek my face. Did you know that most of the time God doesn't show up where he's not wanted? 
It's true. Some have called God a gentleman in that regard. He normally doesn't show up where he's not wanted. More times than not, God shows up where his followers want him to show up. God shows up where his children are hungry for him, where his followers are thirsty for him, where Christians are desperate for more of him, not just desperate for his hand of blessing. Think about your prayers. Most Christians pray, oh God, give me this, give me that, bless me, Lord, I pray. Heal me of my sickness. Heal me of my pain. Give me the money I need for my bills. Keep the roof over my head. Put food on my table. Be with my kid who's off doing who knows what and is messed up. Be with me here. Be with him there. Gimme, 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 gimme. We focus on praying for God's hand of blessing. And here God reminds us, don't just seek my hand. Seek my face. Seek my face. Someone pointed this out to me years ago, and I would never really made that connection. You know what? You're right. Most of my prayers are for God's hand to do something. Not just God. I want to be with you. I want to be in your presence. I just want to be with you. I want to seek your face. One of the greatest tragedies in the church today is that we are content with just a small taste of God. We don't have an insatiable craving for more and more and more of God. But revival comes when God's people are hungry, desperately hungry for more of him. In the 5th century, there was a mighty move of God in Ireland. Many of you have heard a little bit of the story. St. Patrick was the man that God used in a miraculous way in the 5th century to lead thousands of Irish men, women, and children to a saving knowledge of Christ. And I think that's pretty remarkable. We ask the question, why did God use Patrick? Why did God use Patrick to reach Ireland? Did you know he wasn't even Irish? Many say that he's the patron saint of Ireland. He wasn't even Irish. But God sent him there and used him to reach many. Why did he use Patrick? I believe the prayer that he prayed often that many Christians have prayed over the past 15 years since. I believe the prayer of St. Patrick clues us in as to why God used him in such a powerful way. He prayed this on a regular basis. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. Wow. He wanted more than anything else for God to be at the center of his life, specifically Jesus Christ, to be the center of his life. So when people looked at him, they would see Jesus. When they heard him talk, they would hear Jesus. When he did ministry, they would see Jesus. He wanted his life to be all about Jesus. He was a man who was hungry for him. He was thirsty for Christ. And I want to ask you, Christians, are you hungry for Christ today? Are you desperately thirsty for more and more of Christ in your life? More of Christ in your thoughts, more of Christ in your plans, more of Christ in your relationships, more of Christ in your family, more of Christ in your church, more of Christ in this nation. How long has it been since you've joined with the psalmist in Psalm 42, 1 and 2 and cried out, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? How long has it been since you've been like King David who cried out in Psalm 63 these words, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. How long has it been since like the sons of Korah in Psalm 84, you've cried out with these words, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Amen. I'd rather be here than anywhere else. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the palaces of the wicked. Oh, with God's people, you can sense how they hungered and thirst for the presence of God. They hungered and thirsted for the face of God to be in the presence with the people of God. Is your heart hungry for him today? Is your heart thirsty for God? Do you get excited about coming to church to meet with Him? Or is it just one of the many tasks that you say, i got to carry out because I'm a Christian. It's what I'm supposed to do. You alone know if when you're coming and looking at me as I'm up here preaching or you're standing during a worship song, you alone know what your heart's doing when that's going on. 
You might be physically here and mentally you checked out one minute into the service. I don't know, but you know. And God knows. I want to ask you, when you come, do you come hungry? Do you come hungry? Finally, step number four. God says you have to humble yourselves and pray and seek my face. And number four, you have to turn from your wicked ways. Friends, when we speak of the need for revival, it's important to realize that the sin in America can't be blamed on anyone but us. What are you saying? Most Christians run around and they blame it on the Democrats or they blame it on the liberals or they blame it on President Trump or they blame it on President Biden or they blame it on Hollywood or they blame it on Planned Parenthood. They blame it on our schools. They blame it on law enforcement. We blame sin on everyone except ourselves. Do you know that sinners sin? That's why we call them sinners. Sinners sin. That's what sinners do. Sinners aren't the problem. The problem is that God has called his followers, the followers of Jesus Christ, to be the light of the world, and we ain't shining. We're not shining. The problem with sin in America, the problem with moral decay in America, does not rest primarily with sinners. It rests primarily with the church. It rests with us. If the world around us is dark, it's not because the darkness has gotten darker It's because the church of Jesus Christ has gotten dimmer. It's always been that way. Whenever sin has run rampant in society, it's because God's people have failed to repent of their sin and shine. That's why revival always begins with God's people. We got to get our act straight first. And then we can help our culture get its act straight. It always begins with the church. As we come to him humbly in true repentance, seeking his face, God sets his church ablaze. And as God's people shine, the inevitable result is that a huge number of unbelievers are saved and society is transformed. Let me be very blunt with you right now. Some of you aren't shining Christ's light very brightly because you refuse to repent. You refuse to repent. You have unconfessed sin in your life that you're refusing to get rid of. So you're not the light of the world. You're kind of like your headlights after 10 years. You get that white gunky buildup on your headlights. And at nighttime when the street lights are off, you're wondering, how come I can't see worth a darn through my headlights? It's because you got that white gunk on them that's built up. Why is your light dim in your family? Why is your light dim in your marriage? Why is your light dim at work? Why is your light dim in your neighborhood? Because the gunk of sin has been building up and you ain't shining as brightly as Christ has called you to shine. Let me be honest and real with us today. God has called you to be the light of the world. Some of you are barely the nightlight in your hallway bathroom. And I'm not thinking of any, anyone specific. I don't know, but he knows. And I have to look in the mirror and ask myself the same question. Am I a puny little 10-watt bulb in a nightlight when he's called me to be the light of the world? We need to get right with God. I need to get right with God. You need to get right with God. You need to confess your sin. Turn from your sin. Start doing what Jesus told you to do. Unconfessed sin is wicked. Rebellion against God's commands is wicked, particularly for followers of Christ. So confess your sins to him. Turn from them and start walking in obedience to Christ's commands once again. Well, now what? Now that we know this stuff, now what? Will God completely mess up your plans and mess up my plans and bring revival? Will he bring revival to Christians around you? Will he bring revival to this nation? I hope and pray he does. I believe the Spirit of God can and will revive you and me and his church across this nation if we will humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. I believe he will then hear from heaven and will forgive our sin and will heal our land. Once again, he says so powerfully, if my people... That's you. That's me. That's us. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will do what? Heal their land. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. And we need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your forgiveness. 
Father God, forgive us for our arrogance. When we've thought, I'm good enough. I go to church enough. I serve enough. I give enough. God, how arrogant of us to think we could ever give back to you enough. We can never repay you for what you've done. Lord, humble us before you. Humble your church in America. We get caught up in all the details sometimes. Lord, help us to focus on you humbly. Help us to pray as we've never prayed before. Not just praying for your hand, but praying, Lord, that we could draw closer to your face. Just spend time in your presence. Help us to seek your face. Help us to turn from our wicked ways. We believe you will hear from heaven. You will forgive our sin. And you will heal our land. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And all God's people said, Amen. I want to lead us in one more prayer. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, I want to give you an opportunity to pray with me right now, making a decision to take him into your life. Could we bow our heads and close our eyes once more? If you need to make that decision, please pray with me right now. Just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. Please forgive me. I am a sinner, and I need your grace. I cannot be in a relationship with God without you. I cannot go to heaven without you. I cannot fulfill your purpose for my life without you. I am desperate for you. Please forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Today I choose to make you my Savior and Lord of my life. I will follow you and I will obey you from this point forward. In Jesus' name, amen. In Acts chapter 2, the very first revival, the people were cut to the heart and they, in essence, silently were praying a prayer much like you just prayed. Oh man, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe he's my only hope. And they asked the question, brothers, what should we do? What do we do now? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, from this point forward, if you just made that decision, you need to turn from your sin and start living for Jesus. And you need to be baptized. That's why we have the tank ready to go. If you need to be baptized, if you made that decision, please come see one of us after the service. We've got Alan back there. We've got others of us. I'd love to talk with you and pray with you if you made that decision to follow Jesus Christ today. Amen? Now, I promised you a big announcement. So I'm going to need to ask a favor. Uh, Jim, could you do me a favor? I'd like uh, Roy, since he's one of our elders, to be able to hear most of this. He's teaching our kids in back. Can you grab Roy and just let him know that he can bring the kids with him and be in the back of the room? And that way I can point him out in a few minutes as well. Thank you so much. I promised you a big announcement, and I am going to give you a big announcement today. But not before I give you a long, drawn-out backstory. Oh, some of you figured, yeah, yeah, Dane's going to drag it out. No, I'm not going to drag it out too long. So, long story short, six years ago, We made one of the biggest decisions our church had made in decades. We decided to sell this building. We had bought it from the Air Force in 1994, and six years ago we made the decision to sell this building because we believed it was a ball and chain keeping us from going into the center of town and doing more effective ministry for Christ. And so by 80-some-odd percent vote, I believe the congregation voted, yes, let's sell it. And so we did that, and it was purchased by a school, ended up being a Christian school, so we were super excited about that, answered a prayer. Vermont Christian School came in not quite six years ago and started building a school here, allowing us to stay in the building. Well, about four years ago, we believe God opened the opportunity for us to do what he had called us to do two years earlier, to go to the center of town and do good ministry. So many of you remember we put before you four years ago the plan to launch Impact Christian Church and moved to the Ralph Baker School that was just being built there in early uh, 1999. And so we made that decision. The school was finished in the summer of 99. And in September of 99, we moved to the Ralph Baker School over there in the corner of Mojave and Elevato Roads. And we launched Impact Christian Church. And it was awesome. What did I say? Oh, I was only off by 20 years. Close enough, Holly. Back in my day in 1864... 
You can tell why Holly's right by my side during the week in this office because sometimes uh, Dean's out to lunch. She does an amazing job. So in 2019, uh, we officially launched Impact at the Ralph Baker School. And things were going great. We're doing some good ministry in the middle of town. But all of a sudden, six months later, we're kicked out of the school building because of a little something called COVID-19. And so we met here very quickly. I was given less than a 48-hour notice before our next Sunday service on March 15, 2020. And so we quickly met here the following Sunday, but then President Trump gets on the airwaves the next day and says, uh, we need 15 days to flatten the curve. We need everybody to stay home. And so we said, well, we want to do our part. And so we went online only for two and a half months there in 2020 during that time trying to figure out where to go. Well, in June of 2020, we decided to move back to the front grass area. Some of you were here during that time. And so... We were setting up chairs and breaking down chairs, meeting on the front lawn there, June of 2020, up through the end of October 2020. But something happened in Victorville. Imagine that. Come November, it got really, really cold. And so we didn't want to do church when it was 35 degrees out. And so we moved it inside, still continuing to seek God's direction. Okay, what next? So we've been inside here for a little over two years, a little over two years, and We've just been off and on praying, God, what's, what's next for us? Where do you want us to be? We knew it wasn't a long-term solution, but we wanted to be in the center of town and be able to do ministry affordably. And I want to let you know that about a month ago, it was even a little less than a month ago, we believe God handed us an opportunity on a silver platter. God has given us, I believe, a building where we can meet. Amen? So let's show you a picture. So when I say God has given us a building, that doesn't mean we're buying this thing, but he's given us an opportunity to rent a great space in a very strategic part of this community. Seven, eight years ago, our elders began dreaming about where we could do ministry in a more central location. And Pastor Craig, our associate pastor, was with us at the time, and he and I began to drive around town looking for places that needed a church. And one of the areas that was on our radar was the near side of Apple Valley. So some of you might ask today, where is this great new church in Victorville? Well, it's not exactly a church building, and it's not even in Victorville. This is in the near side of Apple Valley, a few blocks from St. Mary's. And we noticed seven, eight years ago that in that little pocket within a one-mile radius of St. Mary's Hospital, you've got a church of religious science, you've got a Mormon church, you've got a Catholic church, a little further up you've got an Episcopal church, but you have no evangelical church. A church is needed there. Why isn't there one? So we checked into it and we realized the town of Apple Valley is zoned all of that area as office, medical, retail, or as housing or apartments. And so they wouldn't allow a church in that area. And so we kind of just put it on the back burner and looked more at Victorville again. But kind of all this changed in the last two years because two years ago, the owner of this building here is a Christian man who got together with his brother-in-law and had a vision to reconfigure the bottom floor of this office building and even the top floor to be able to hold church services on a Sunday morning. So his brother-in-law, his name's Brandamar, he launched two years ago God's House Church in Apple Valley. It's outgrown this space. They're moving to a building that's available in Hesperia, so they're moving out the end of this month which means the space is now available. And what's really cool about that is the two of them got together. Uh, They happened to have some deep pockets. They invested several hundred thousand dollars into this facility. I want to show you a shot of the inside, what it looks like on a Sunday morning. Just the video wall they put in behind the stage is somewhere in the neighborhood of, I think, fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. The stage they built, they busted out interior walls, they reconfigured the space so that you could have a worship service downstairs, that you have all the sound and lighting capabilities. And one thing I'm super excited about is right now, the way we're doing our video for our online services, our Wi-Fi signal in this room is horrible. So we cannot do effective live streams in this room. Over here, we'll be able to immediately go to live stream for our online services which means they get to have a more immersive experience. When I crack jokes for the Thursday recording for the sermon, no one laughs because there's like two people in the room. And DJ doesn't like my jokes. So they'll be able to participate a little more and will hopefully be able to grab more to come in for the in-person service. Upstairs, let's take a look at the children's ministry area. 
Upstairs, they reconfigured this. This is at the top of the stairs, the little check-in area. Can't see, but that's where they do the check-in, the computer and everything. They turn left through this door to the left on the picture. This is the main room upstairs. This church is running a 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock service, 50 kids each service. And so they have most of those kids, the uh, 6-year-olds through 5th graders, in this main room. Back left of the picture, there's another room off to the side. That's where they have the nursery, babies one and under. And to the right here, through this window you can see, is a little bit larger side room where they have the pre-K, the preschool room. And so what's going on? I think this is awesome. The brother-in-law is moving his church over to Hesperia. And the owner of this building says, I want to continue to do ministry. I'll buy the equipment from you. So unlike when we met at the Ralph Baker School where we had to pull up with our cargo truck and our trailer and unload all the chairs and unload all the sound system stuff and all the video stuff and all that stuff had to be unloaded, set up, and then brought back on the trailer afterwards, here 90% of what we need is going to be there on day one. And when did that church begin? Less than two years ago. So it's even newer than the stuff we bought for the school. So I think that's pretty amazing. I'm going to ask Alan to come up here. He had a a few thoughts he wanted to share. But we know you guys have a a ton of questions, and we won't be able to answer all of them today. Uh, But I just wanted to kind of just whet your appetite a little bit. We're going to get you a survey here in a little bit. We want your feedback. We'd love your questions, and we want to let you know of opportunities there are to serve. On day one, if all goes as planned, we'll be there in five weeks on Easter Sunday, April, April 9th. April 9th. This is a much smaller facility than we have here. This is 19,000 square feet. It's a fraction of that there. This room that you're in, you're used to a lot of elbow room. We're not going to have elbow room there. If we take this congregation and drop them in that facility for one service, it will make no sense. Why are we moving this group if we're going to fill the service on day one? The reason is so we can reach the lost like God has called us to, so we can reach the unchurched like God has called us to. So we're immediately on day one going to two services, a 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. So if you like 9 o'clock, keep coming at 9. If you're like, I cannot get my kids here by 9 o'clock, thank the Lord, finally, there's a later service offered. We'll have an 11 o'clock. And one thing I love about this setup, we've been talking to a few of you over this past week. Some of you have a heart to serve every week. And we know that's not really possible in a church with one service because we want you to be able to be in the worship service most of the time. In this situation, some of you who have a heart to serve will be able to serve just about every week and still be able to attend a worship service every week. Amen. God is so good. <laughs> I just been summoned. There you go. <laughs> better, man. better, better. Okay. Yeah, God is so good doing amazing things, guys. And I know sometimes change could be scary, but I believe when God does open a door that we must walk through it and obey God. Uh, back in 2013, about 10 years ago, After searching about five years with no answers, my mom, I remember finally coming into my room saying, Alan, I think I found a treatment plan for you, but our insurance doesn't cover the costs. And I thought, man, but what if it's one more treatment that isn't a success? Then I'm let down again. So we had to go and we had to fundraise. And it was a large amount. I think it was $10,000 for a week's time of treatment. I said, "But, but what if I'm down, let down again? Let's try and just see what the Lord does. And so you guys, after about a month of fundraising, we didn't raise $10,000. We raised $20,000. And where I'm getting at is that when God opens a door, we must walk through it. And the reason why we raised $20,000 was for a reason. It's because the $10,000 was not enough. And the doctor said, you know what, Alan? We helped some of your neck pain. But we, for another $10,000, the exact amount, you could be here another week. I think it will help your back. So we were able to stay another week, and Dr. Jernigan, who I found out was a Christian, as we talked, and he prayed with me, as much of the nurses did. That second week, you guys, I was able to walk. Small steps, but I was able to walk. And if it wasn't for me taking that leap of faith, I wouldn't have changed. I wouldn't have been better. 
So you guys, with that being said, we have to walk through this door that God has opened up in this powerful way in this season of our lives. And I pray and our belief is that we'll probably outgrow it shortly, hopefully, uh, just if, if because God is going to move in such a big way, you guys. So let's just continue to pray and just let's invite our friends and family there. It's such an easier place to do ministry at. So God bless you guys. Amen. It'll go to LB for Pat's prayer. You can hang tight up here. And so, yeah, some are probably wondering, is this a permanent move? And someone asked me that a couple days ago, and my answer was, I hope not. You see, I believe God has called us to be in the center of, a town, center of this town to do ministry effectively seven days a week. This building will just be available to us one day a week. And so we're going to go back to our impact groups, small group Bible studies, probably within the first few months. We'll continue to have men's probably over Denny's on Saturdays when we meet. We're looking at women's ministries in a more central location. This building here will primarily be just for offices and for storage. Would have been a nightmare. Those of you that know how much stuff we have in all the rooms here, if we had to clear that all out in March, that would be a nightmare. And so, praise God, the school has already worked a new arrangement with us. We were playing 50-50 on utilities. Effective immediately when we leave, we'll no longer be using the central air conditioning or heating in this place. And so the utilities will plummet, and we will save about $1,300 a month on this place that we can pour into that place. And so we're super excited about that. And, and one thing is really neat. If we outgrow two services, I think we can add a third. If we outgrow a third, I believe by that time, God will have given us the growth and momentum that we truly can have a place of our own in a more central location. We can't not... This, this is important. Well, why would we go over there? Because we can't make that step from here. Nothing grows in this location. And so I found uh, an interesting stat this last week. I was talking to one of the executives at St. Mary's Hospital just a few blocks from this building here. And as I was talking to him, he said, more than 75% of St. Mary's patients live outside of Apple Valley. But they come to St. Mary's because the perception is it's the best hospital in the Victor Valley, the best hospital in the desert. Many of you are aware of that. It doesn't matter if that perception is true or not. But that's what people think. It's the best hospital. And so one thing that's really cool to think about, I would guess some 80, 90 percent of people in this valley, regardless of where they live, end up at least once a year in this corridor where this building is because they choose to go there. Their friends live there. They want to eat at the restaurants there. They want to go to visit an apartment there. They want to go to their doctor, dentist, or hospital there. People choose to go there. The exact opposite is true with this location. Ninety percent of people in this Victor Valley have no desire or intention of coming out to this area. It's not an attractive place. It's not a place they go. So how do we reach the lost? Do we say, oh, those mean sinners, they need to come no matter where we're located? Well, we're called to go, not just open our doors and say, come. So we are going to where the people are, and I am I am beyond excited to see what this amazing church, continuing to teach the Word of God and worship God and be true to the Scriptures and share the Gospel and prioritize outreach and prioritize kids and teenagers and adults. I cannot wait to see what this church, what you and I can do in this location because, you know, we've had two hands tied behind our back here. But I believe in a very real sense we're set free to do even greater ministry there. I want to thank those of you. In the month of January, I was telling you, our theme is to seek and save the lost. At the time when I was preaching those sermons in January, I had no idea this was going to happen. In a 100 years, I wouldn't have thought we'd be somewhere else on Easter. But I want to thank those of you who have been handing out those cards, those of you who have been packing in your back pocket these little gospel tracks. I know it's been hard to invite your friends and family to this location. Some of you have had your friends and family look at you weird when you've invited them. Amen. This will be a much easier ask. And so it's going to be awesome. We're going to get a survey into your hands. If you could go ahead and pass those out, guys. They look like this. And if you don't know who our other elders are, Pat, would you wave your hand in back? Pat Breslin's one of our elders this year. Roy, we brought him in. He was teaching our kids in back today. But Roy, Pat, and Alan are our elder team this year, and they've been instrumental in helping us to get to this place. But we've got four questions on the survey. Uh, quick question number one, do you support this decision to move forward with Apple Valley as our new location? Number two, carrying it out requires volunteers are you willing to help out once a month or even once a week we need to know because we're building teams this month getting ready for it 
Question three, will you commit to pray for God's guidance? Will you pray every day or at least pray every week? We want to know. And then finally, this move will increase our monthly budget. It's pretty cool uh, that it's only increasing our budget by 10%. I think that's awesome. At about $1,600, it'll increase our budget for the new year is what we project. And so we're thankful that our costs here have decreased so we can invest in a more central location here. For those of you who are into numbers and cents, you can look at the back of that little sheet. Uh, There are some things that we are hoping to purchase uh, to do an effective launch next month. Uh, If you feel so led to give an extra gift, uh, those are some items. You can approach one of us or uh, Peggy. Would you wave to us, Peggy? I saw. Yeah, there she is in the pink shirt. Uh, See Peggy, our treasurer. If if you would like to make a special donation, that would be awesome. Uh, to help take some of the load off the budget. But we wanted to give that to you. We'll be up here afterwards if you have any questions. Hope you're excited about it. Be praying about it. God is going to do some amazing things in the weeks and months to come. Amen? The best is yet to come. And with that, Pat, would you run on up here, sir? As Pat's going to close us in prayer. And as he's coming up here, as a reminder, if you're visiting us for the first time, uh, do see Lily or I think we've got Stephanie back there at the table. See them if you have uh, your uh, your Connect card. If you're a first-time visitor, they have a gift for you. Uh, don't forget to sign up your kids and grandkids for the skate day. Uh, Renee will be in the lobby to uh, sell tickets if you'd like to buy those. And do see us if you have any questions or input. Let's uh, close in prayer.